Well, hello, Praxis. Uh, it's a joy and privilege to uh, open and bring God's Word uh, to you tonight. Uh, we will be continuing our series in the book of Romans uh, this evening. And I guess you guys are the really, uh, you know, diehard, uh, hardcore uh, people who, uh, people of God who enjoy fellowship because I know there is a, a very important game going on right now. Um, but uh, I, it encourages me that you're here. Uh, not that it matters. Um, but uh, yeah, it is a joy and privilege uh, to be here tonight and open God's word uh, to you. We're continuing our series in Romans. And really what we're going to look at uh, this particular evening is how, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about justification, right? Justification, the blessings of justification. Well, in particular for today, uh, the main focus will be on justification and its relationship to us, to Adam, and to how that changes us in our relationship to Christ, okay? So that's kind of just a, a big picture of what we're going at. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 12 to 21. Uh, I'll be reading our passage, uh, open in prayer, and then we'll begin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world, before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned from that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, awaken us from our spiritual slumber. We plead for the Holy Spirit's help to open our eyes to see and behold, wondrous things from your word. I pray that you would constrict our wandering minds and hearts so we may see and savor the glory of Christ. Reorient our affections to the beauty and magnificent worth of Christ. And to do that, bring us low so that you may be brought high. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin today uh, with a question 
a lead-on question. Have you ever considered or thought about someone who has, a, who has had a great and profound impact on your life and others? Uh, who is that one person that comes to mind when it comes to influence and impact on your life and other people's lives? Whether for good or for bad. Or perhaps phrased another way, how much impact can one person make in the world? Perhaps in praxis, the power and influence of one comes in the form of a K-pop boy band, infamously known as BTS. Who would have thought that a group of young boys could have such a powerful cultural impact on many teenagers and young adults to being up in arms to secure tickets for their upcoming concert in L.A.? and major disappointment if they don't get it. Or maybe for some of you, what comes to mind is one comic book hero, hero that seems to have an infinite amount of power that helps him defeat any foe, any villain, with a single punch from his fists. Then you have standout athletes that seem to stand above the rest when it comes to changing the game or shaping a generation of fans. LeBron, LeBron James, Tom Brady, legacies, of these athletes. Or if architecture is your jam, then perhaps you recognize the influence of I am pay. I am not actually pay. But anyways, this iconic design of his is the glass pyramid, pyramid situated as an inviting entrance to um, the Louvre Museum in Paris that houses these masterpieces of the greats. Or if you're a tech bro geek, you need no introduction to the late Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. Elon Musk, I can't even pronounce his name. Well, anyways, where am I going with this, really? Well, think about it for a second. What is the singular thread, the common denominator, that connects these people together? It's that they demonstrate the power and influence of one upon the many. They demonstrate the impact and influence they can have upon the whole world. Men and women who have singularly influenced and shaped humanity's culture, society, politics, sports, etc. World shapers and world changers. But who is missing on this list? Naturally, being in church, many of you are instinctually trained like Pavlov's dogs, or sheep rather, to give the correct Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Duh! Jesus is the one person who has powerfully changed the world. And you would be right. And there is much to be said about Jesus. However, in our passage this evening, Paul also has another person in mind who impacted the world. And who is this one person that has influenced humanity spanning all generations since the historical origin of humans? His name is Adam. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Adam? What's this, who's this Adam guy? What's he have to do with me? And to answer you bluntly, everything. Earlier in Romans chapter 1, Paul unleashes this sober reality for humanity. All of mankind is under the wrath of God for their sin and rebellion against God. And Romans 1.18 describes sin as ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppression of the truth about God, and how this plays out in the lives of 
every single individual is by viewing their existence and life with an out-of-sight, out-of-mind type of attitude towards God. And because of our sin problem, we have a wrath problem. We are under God's righteous judgment. Yet the hope in our hopelessness, our hopeless predicament in this life, is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. By believing in him, by faith, we are justified and declared not guilty. And then Paul hunkers down and gets deep into these rich truths of justification. When we began our study in Romans chapter 5, we learned the blessings of justification by faith. And now as we come to the end of chapter 5, he revisits this sort of lingering question left hanging earlier from chapters 1 through 3. Just how exactly do we get here? Why are we the way we are? And Paul sets out to answer that question for us this evening. Our origin story finds its root in Adam, the first human being that ever lived, the first human God created. Adam, like Jesus, powerfully impacted humanity, and the purpose of bringing up past history is to help us connect the dots, to see our relationship with Adam, then to compare that with those who have a relationship with Christ. And that ultimately leads us to our key idea this evening. That is, your eternal destiny either lies in this spectacular sin of Adam or the superbounding grace of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to be looking at three realities that affect your eternal destiny. Look with me at our first point. Adam represents humanity in sin's destruction in verse 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, see that? Verse 12 begins with one man. And we know this refers to Adam. If you remember back in Genesis, Adam was in the literal paradise of earth, the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam one explicit command, but did Adam listen and obey? No. Adam committed one devastating act of disobedience. He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God told was off limits. And because Adam disobeyed God's command, sin was introduced to the world. But follow along in verse 12, and death through sin. You see, death is like a trailing cargo train that rides along because it's pulled by the locomotive of sin at crushing speed. Where sin entered the world, Death is not far behind. If you remember God's warning to Adam in Genesis 2.17, Adam was explicitly told, for in the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And death is exactly what he experienced. That's what happened. Death entered on the coattails of sin. Theologians understand that before Adam ate of that forbidden fruit, he was able to, to sin but he was also able to not sin. He made a volitional choice. But after eating of the fruit in his disobedience, he was able to sin and also unable to not sin. Why? Because along with sin came death. And after Adam's sin, death entered the story of human history. And Adam's death included the aspect of what's known as spiritual death. There was a constitutional change in Adam. 
He experienced spiritual death through his separation from God, banishment from paradise, and the presence of God. Adam was isolated, isolated from fellowship with God. That was broken, severed. And the change in Adam's condition of spiritual death included that inability to not sin. His nature was corrupted. You could call this an irreversible spiritual disease on the cellular level. The new normal for Adam after the fall was to sin and to rebel against God, to demonstrate wickedness, to do evil. For those of you who have watched Marvel's Iron Man, you could say that Adam man became fallen man with his arc reactor core being being corrupt, adversely affecting his actions, his movement, his direction in life, contrary to worshiping God. But the death that sin brought isn't just spiritual separation from God. Not just spiritual death, it was physical. When Adam sinned, his life actually had an expiration date now. The aging process had begun. His physical body started to die. And like so many of us realize about the aging process, and I'm not an exception to that, our bodies get weaker. Our bodies deteriorate. And as Adam proves to all of us, the physical body eventually ceased to function. Dying became death, as Genesis 5.5 says. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. But things don't end there. It gets worse, much, much more worse, continuing in verse 12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, if you were to read through Genesis 5 on your own, you'd find it wasn't just Adam that died. It continued to a a historical record of obituaries that all end with this sobering reality summed up in two words. He died. He died. Generation after generation, people after people, everyone dies. Death wasn't just confined and contained with Adam. You can't quarantine what is unquarantinable. Uh, Death is not just a super spreader. Death is a universal spreader. It spread to Adam's children, his children, and his children's children. Entire, the entire human race faces the reality of human death. Its infection rate is 100%, and its mortality rate is 100%. And we're reminded of this painful and saddening fact when we visit a hospital. We lose a loved one. Or we picture in our minds the reality that every day, someone in this world has expired. And it's a chilling scene where the defibrillators stop. The dread when a loved one hooked up to an EKG heart monitor flatlines. And all that can be heard is this unending, high-pitched beep. If you ever studied at um, UCLA, I I didn't actually, I didn't attend UCLA, but I did study it a lot, or driven around the area, you'll know that near the campus are symbols of life or the preservation of one's life, health. And I don't mean that biology department. I'm talking about Whole Foods Market, LA Fitness, and Equinox. But guess what's just around the corner? The LA National Cemetery. Death is always waiting around the corner as people live their lives. And we may try to avoid it, but the reality remains true for all of us. You can maintain and seek to prolong your life with exercise, a healthy diet, but still, yet, the reality is that you will eventually die. 
You don't have any options to hedge against death. On a long enough timeline, everyone's survival rate drops to zero. One of the founding fathers of America, Benjamin Franklin, acknowledged that the only certainties in life are death and taxes. And we understand the certainty of death because of Adam's representation for us in death. He is the source of our death. Adam's name in the Hebrew simply means man. There's an important connection to be made here. Paul's whole point is that Adam represents mankind in his reality of sin and death. He represents me, you, and everyone else who has ever lived. And so what does it mean to be represented by someone? Well, to be represented by someone is to have someone stand in the place of others. To help us to try to conceptualize this concept more clearly, let's consider a life or death type of illustration. The Hunger Games. In the fictional world of The Hunger Games, for those of you who have read this young adult dystopian novel series or watched the movie series, female protagonist Katniss Everdeen takes on a, a representative role on behalf of others. And within this dystopian world are 12 impoverished districts. And each district is represented by a contestant, also known as a tribute, who competes on behalf of their district and their family. Well, Katniss Everdeen, in an effort to save her sister's life from these life-or-death games when she was called and drafted, steps in as a substitute for her sister Prim. She then competes as a representative for her district. And if she wins, everyone in her family reaps the benefits and rewards of life in a luxurious mansion while she is alive. Or consider maybe the actual government that we live in. We elect political government leaders to represent us, right? So when we vote, we are selecting a representative. That representative's decisions and actions actually has consequences that affect people they represent. When the president, commander-in-chief declares war on a country, there's a sense where we have declared war. We participate in the war. We are affected by the war in resources, whether it be human, lives lost, as well as political ramifications. And if a represented leader declares peace, we as people experience that peace. But let's address the elephant in the room. I'm sure there's got to be someone in here who has probably considered thought, well, how exactly is that fair and just? How is that fair, God? I didn't choose Adam as my representative. In fact, when I, see, uh, when I die and see Adam, oh, man, I'm going to give him a few words about his catastrophic screw-up. But guess what? The Bible teaches that we would have done the same thing if we were in Adam's shoes. And if the glove does fit, God does not acquit. Remember the last phrase in verse 12? And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Emphasis placed on because all sinned. Yes, mankind is represented by Adam, and because of him, we're dragged into the reality of sin and death. But this much is also true, both and. We're guilty of our own sin and death too. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. At our core is this very nature in our hearts, a disposition to sin just as the change in Adam happened in his heart when he disobeyed God. He represents us perfectly like a mirror. We sin willingly and thus play the part. 
we like to see ourselves as mere accomplices or accessories to sin and the crimes of our rebellion against God. But the reality is that we are the principal agent of our sin. We like to blame social factors, economic factors, psychological factors for all that's wrong with the people in the world. And why that may provide a partial answer to the question, the Bible minces no words to get to the heart of the matter. Individual persons are the problem. Why? Because they're fundamentally corrupt in nature. The finger is pointed towards the core of our being, our hearts, and Adam brought that upon us, but he also represents us perfectly. So which is it? How does Paul address the fairness question? Well, he simply affirms these two truths together. Adam represents us in sin and death, and we are responsible for the death brought upon us because of our own sin. We have all tested SIN positive, and all of us will die. Sin is universal. And he continues in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So what, what on earth is Paul trying to say here? Is he simply doubling down and drilling uh, in this truth, sin is universal? Well, without exception. But to do that, he answers an objection, a seeming gap or loophole, loophole in God's justice system, or so we think. He acknowledges that there was a period of time where there was no oral or codified written law, and the law refers to specifically the Mosaic law given to Israel during the time of Moses when Israel was delivered from the captivity of Pharaoh and uh, Egyptian captivity. And that's recorded in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So Paul is saying that between the time of Adam and Moses, God didn't give out the law in a formal way where you would reference a transgression has taken place in your actions, like against like, oh, you violated criminal code number one, two, three, etc. But remember that in Romans 2.15, even without formal law, everyone has a law written in their hearts. People acknowledge and experience real guilt for their actions, whether they've known about it from before. I think that's how a lot of times children learn that, oh, they should feel bad about something, even if they've never been formally told by their parents that what they did was wrong. So Paul's essentially saying, yes, the period between Adam and Moses was a distinct period where the kind of sin that, is, that humanity is charged with is then given an explicit moral code of the law afterwards. Nevertheless, no matter what period you're born or live in, the result is the same. There's still sin. There's still death. And if you don't believe that, well, verse 14 affirms that. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Remember, death rides on the coattails of sin, so the caboose cannot be unhinged or unchained just because there's no law. It's still there. Sin is universal. Death is universal. And we know this because people still died from the time of Adam to Moses. People still sinned in the sense that even though they didn't have the law, people were wicked and did evil. Just because Adam's son Cain didn't have the law that said, thou shalt not murder, didn't make it okay for him to strike and kill his brother Abel, sin and death still reigned. And even after Adam's descendants continued to produce offspring, generation, generation, fill the earth, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin and death is universal. And we are all represented by Adam in the destructiveness of sin. And so where does that leave us, Praxis? Why does this all matter at all? Well, if we find this hard to, to chew and swallow, and we reject this, I don't believe any of this. This is all nonsense. Well, to reject representation by Adam means to also reject representation by Christ. One of the biggest problems that we have with being represented by Adam is the fact that we didn't choose him, right? And that makes it unfair, we see, or unjust. We dislike the idea of someone standing in our place, especially if we didn't choose that person. Rather, we want the choice to elect our own representative, like we do our government. Hear their campaign, hear their platform before we vote, or heck, elect ourselves. The best representative of yourself is none other than yourself, right? Or let's say a defendant in court wants to choose their own legal defense representative before a judge, or they represent themselves. Well, if you truly loathe, despise the idea of Adam representing you, you have to be consistent in refusing representation. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're truly consistent in rejecting Adam representing you, you must also reject Christ's representation of you. You must reject all representation. And that pretty much leaves you before the judgment of God's holy throne without a defense against sin and death. And do you really want that? But God is more intelligent than me and you. You couldn't have made a better choice. In fact, in God's wisdom, having a representative stand in your place is actually very, very good news. If Adam's disobedience represents you in sin and death, then to be consistent, there is that hope for another man who is fully obedient to God to represent you. A second Adam that's perfect, that can represent you before God. You can have that hope. As verse 14 says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. A type is a word that originally had the idea of an impression made by some type of molding. When you apply pressure on a stamp against hot wax, there's an impression on it. This is the type of idea that applies to a person or event that shows or reveals the shape of someone or something else. And the comparison is that Adam corresponds with Christ. Adam's one action led to the impact of many uh, and impacted many people. And then Christ's one action impacted many as well. So Adam represents many people, but his better counterpart, Jesus, represents people in a better way. So representation is the means by which Adam's guilt comes to us as much as how Christ's righteousness comes to us. Righteousness comes to us because Jesus represents those he saves. And Adam shows us our need for a better representative. It informs our longing for a better outcome. So if Adam represents us in sin's destruction, who ought humanity place their hope in? And that leads us to our second reality that affects our eternal destiny. Christ represents many in abundant grace, verse 15 to 17. So in verses 15 to 17, there's an important shift taking place. Similarities between Adam and Christ as representatives transitions to a series of contrasts. And this is to spotlight 
the superiority of Christ. The spotlight is actually no longer on Adam if you look at these verses. His name is not mentioned. Jesus takes front center stage as the better representative. If Adam was the warm-up act uh, for act one in the story of redemption by introducing us to this horrific problem, Jesus in act two demonstrates himself to be the hero that confronts and rescues us from this problem. He is the greatest showman. And from Adam's one trespass and sin, many died. But Adam and Jesus are not equals. Adam and Jesus don't impact and influence mankind in the same way. One man is clearly, undoubtedly better. How? Look at verse 15. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the power of Jesus Christ's act of obedience by living righteously and dying on the cross to justify sinners is utterly greater than the power and sin and death on humanity. That's why Paul says in verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So while there are many trespasses that bring people under the guilt of sin and God's judgment, Jesus has a special ability and power to reverse all of that. For the sake of illustration, have... Uh, okay, this might resonate with some of the guys. Um, have you ever played a game called StarCraft? No. Okay. Oh, some hands. Yeah. Okay, I'm the only one. <laughs> All right. Well, I was that guy in high school playing video games, okay? And there's nothing wrong with video games, actually. And, but anyways, I was so bad. I was so bad at this game. I would even lose to the computer, the computer AI, right? I wasn't even good enough to play other people online. But while I was losing to the computer, all my units were about to be destroyed. I was about to lose the game. Something changed. I typed in this infamous code, power overwhelming. And no matter how powerful or how many enemy forces were attacking my units or in my base, no matter how close I was to losing that game, typing in that co code gave me invincibility. My units would not die. Now, while some of you may laugh at this ridiculous analogy from my past, and maybe, yeah, anyways, in my mind at least, I think it illustrates the principle well. The grace of God overwhelms Adam's sin, his fall from grace, affecting humanity for those who are justified by faith. That's because that what Jesus gives by the gift of his life offered as a sacrifice, which eventually gives us spiritual life. The power overwhelming nature of grace triumphs over the power of death that's overwhelmed. Adam's failure led to the shame as God killed an animal to cover his nakedness. But Christ's success saves us since God killed his very own son to cover our sinfulness. Adam's failure led to banishment from paradise, but Christ's success guarantees us entrance to eternal paradise. Adam's failure gave humanity corrupt hearts. Christ's success gives humanity a new heart and a new spirit. Adam's failure gives, uh, of giving into Satan's temptation means humanity continues to give into the lies and temptations, temptations of the evil one. But Christ's success means temptation and sin have no power over you. Adam's failure brought sin into the world, but Christ's success takes away sin from the world. As 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall be made alive. 
Justification by faith, as we learned in previous weeks, changes us. It brings many blessings. Not just access to grace, but realizing grace reigns in spiritual life over sin. And even in part now. We will also experience eternal physical life after death in our glorified resurrected bodies. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So why why is this significant for me and you? It's because grace shines brightly through the darkness of sin and death. When all seems hopeless in the world that we live in because of the reality of people's sin, people dying, God is continuing to write his story of redemption in the reversal of sin and death, starting with the hearts of his own people. The reality of God's grace overshadows that, the darkness of it. It seems like sin hinders or blocks God's grace, but the reality is that grace triumphs over no matter how much sin there is in in people and in the world. And certainly this is true for those who have been justified by faith in Christ, because you have a new representative You no longer identify with the humanity of Adam. You now are a human in Christ. You are united with Christ through the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. I like how the hymn writer Isaac Watts puts it when he writes, Adam the sinner at his fall, death like a conqueror sees us all. A thousand newborn babes are dead by fatal union to their head. We sing thine everlasting son who joined our nature to his own. Adam the second from the dust raises the ruins of the first. Isn't that truth that we are powerfully and radically in union with Christ encouraging? If you receive the gift of God's saving grace by faith, you ought to be encouraged by the rich treasure trove of truth these verses offer us. We have a new representative who will never cast out those who are his own. We have been justified. We have, been, we have received the gift of Christ's righteousness. So how does that impact us or affect us practically? Well, it means that our relationship with sin has changed. Just as how Adam's sin resulted in everyone being born with a sinful nature, everyone in Christ is born again with a nature that's dead to sin. We actually have the power to say no to sin and fight sin through the Spirit of God within us. We are no longer in bondage to sin. Now we are freed from the power of sin Just as in Adam, everyone was brought in a state where they were not able or not able to not sin. Well, something changes with Christ. Because of Christ, we are renewed to a state where we are able to not sin. Our union with Christ undoes that devastating work when we are uh, when we were in union with Adam. We have been emancipated from the rule of sin and sworn our allegiance to the rule of Christ in our hearts and lives. This means that if you are in Christ today, you can say no to sin. It means that you can't buy into the lie that you're just too powerless to actively battle the indwelling sin that still remains in your old former selves. You've received a new heart, a new moral nature, which is renewed the more you yield to the Spirit in obedience and die to sin and live for righteousness. So brothers and sisters, do not concede and wrongly believe the sin you are struggling with is too powerful. And that brings us to our final 
point this evening. Christ graciously leads his own to victorious life in verses 18 to 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Stop right there. Think about this for a second. If Adam's fall reveals that sin and death was a reality before the law, and both are condemned, then what does it mean that now that we have the law, it increases the trespass? Well, first it means that the knowledge of right and wrong isn't enough to save you from the power of sin and death. That's significant for our own understanding today. Knowing what is morally good, learning principles from God's word, while noble, noble is not what saves or justifies you. You may think it gets you far in your self-justification and merit before God and get his approval, but you're running a treadmill going nowhere. It's only a matter before you'll trip and fall in your disobedience and fall short. It's in your nature. People with the law who know right and wrong from the Bible are still in sin and death if they don't believe in Jesus. In other words, you can come and attend church. You can make friends who talk like good people, live like good people, learn good virtues and principles like good Christians. But if you think it is by doing those things that will save you or by association with others through osmosis is what's going to save you from eternal death and justify you, you're in for a rude awakening. Since sin and death is universal, it doesn't matter whether you view yourself as a nice and good person. Good people die. Good people die, I mean. Nice people die. Mean people die. It doesn't matter whether you're ignorant or well-instructed. Moral people die. Rich people die. Poor people die. Successful people die. Intelligent people die. And perhaps you're not the kind of person that's gentle in your fight against death, right? The dying of the light. As that Dylan um, Thomas poem goes, you may rage, rage against the dying of your life, but the reality is you cannot escape death. Your life is but a vapor. Second, the law only increases your guilt and magnify your rebellious nature. It makes it even more apparent how you fail God's standard of righteousness. It only displays the shortcomings in a more glaring way, the ugly side of you on a large screen in the courtroom of God. Imagine with me for a second that you're driving on the streets of sunny Southern California in your cars, right? And imagine there's no stop signs, no signs at all, right? So you're just cruising. You're just cruising. No stoplights, clear open road. It's hard to notice whether you're breaking any laws, right? You don't see anything, no, no signs. But now let's say suddenly as you continue driving, a speed limit sign appears. Okay, 40 miles per hour, I, I got this. I'm not going to like, yeah. Another 10 seconds pass. Huh, another speed limit, this time 60 miles, okay, go faster. Another 10 seconds, pass in a row, another sign pops up. Stay above 70, but under 75. What? What kind of sign is that? Another 10 seconds pass. Now there's multiple signs every 10 seconds you're driving, right? But I'm pretty sure me breaking road traffic laws becomes all the more apparent because the signs just point to my failure to obey if that were the situation scenario, right? Multiple signs. Or if you've ever lived in 
parked in a city like San Francisco, you'll know that there's like five different signs that you have to interpret, interpret all of them together to figure out what is the proper way to park. I had to experience that and fall short when I got my ticket. And if these are just bad illustrations on describing how law increases the glaring visibility of failing to live up to the law, uh, just go to uh, a lawyer that you know. And, uh, but anyways, back to this passage, continuing verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Consider a, a dam, you know, a dam that is built and in, erected in order to hold back water, because that's what their function is, to channel, regulate water. Consider a wall of sin that is growing and growing, and this wall is built upon every single sin committed by every single person on earth. And each sin is a brick or a stone brick. Now imagine all these sin bricks arranged and arrayed in a way that gets higher and higher, that rivals the, the, the world's highest, uh, tallest skyscrapers on earth. And it keeps growing and growing. But guess what? No matter how high of a dam there is that's erected by sin, it is unable to hold back the abundance of grace that overflows. Grace spills over. Isn't that hopeful? Isn't that comforting? That there, there's no such thing as too much sin that grace cannot overcome and cover. I think this is a truth that some of us need to hear. Perhaps some of you here tonight and you have not fully received this gift of grace. You have not accepted the gracious act of obedience of Jesus' life and death on the cross. You find it hard to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You're skeptical. Maybe you're thinking, well, you have no idea what I've done in the past. Some of these other people in praxis, they might have to seem, they might, they seem to have their lives together but I sure don't. I'm not actually a Christian. I'm just trying to figure out just the mess in my life right now. I really do feel like I deserve nothing and maybe accept God's card dealt to me by being punished when I die. Or maybe you're thinking, you don't know what I've done in the past. You have no idea what kind of lifestyle I lived in college. I wasn't the guy participating in Christian fellowship groups. You have no idea how I've hurt others with my words, with my actions, things I've done against people I'm supposed to love and care for. And I failed over and over again. Can I really be forgiven? Can I really break out of this hopeless prison of sin? Can I really be justified? And the answer is yes. Because God's grace can abound over sin. But the question is, will you receive the gift? Grace is something that's freely given to you, even though you don't deserve it. But you still have to receive this gift. You must have the posture of open arms, needy, realizing you bring nothing. You, you, don't, you don't offer anything to the table to earn this. You just receive it by faith. You receive the act of obedience that Jesus accomplished on behalf of your disobedience in life. You receive Christ's righteousness as a gift to you, like a precious garment, even though the garment of your life is like filthy rags before holy and righteous God. You just accept and rejoice. 
Or maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're already a Christian. You've been a Christian for quite a while. Many years, in fact. But you're anxious about how Christ relates to you in your constant failure. You think that in your mind that Christ has cast you out and has many reasons to do so since you're a pitiful Christian at best. Jesus feels like he's at arm's length with you, distant, as if he's grown tired of you, maybe. And while you may have many objections for coming to Jesus and drawing near to him because of these feelings, maybe you even feel like you'd rather isolate yourself from other Christians or remain alone as you figure things out. If I can encourage you, don't be like that. Like we often say here at Lighthouse, put yourself in the pathway of grace. You are stronger when you're around others who are also in union with Christ. So don't be that lone ember if you're struggling. Be a part of the one special community, the family of God. In the present life where we struggle and experience shame and frustration with the sin in our lives, the reformer Martin Luther said this encouraging statement to, to fuel, fuel your faith against doubts that the great accuser tries to deceive you and have you to believe. He writes about um, the, the, the shame and frustration of sin even though you are in Christ. This is what he writes. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. There's nothing else God could offer to demonstrate his love and commitment to save his own. He gave his son, his perfectly obedient son, offered him up on a cross in our place so we would receive his righteousness. And while he took the heat and wrath for our sin. And that sounds scandalous, but this is also the good news of the gospel. And the purpose, why this overflow of grace, Paul concludes in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace reigns and leads to eternal life. Grace through and through brings people from spiritual death to new life, from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Grace in the beginning, grace in the believer's present life, and future grace when we enjoy eternal life and fellowship with God in the new heavens and new earth. All of this comes through Jesus Christ. I like what John Newton writes about the grace that effectively saves and grace that effectively keeps. He writes, Grace reigns to parting crimson sins, to melt the hardest hearts, and from the work it once begins, it never once departs. T'was grace that called our souls at first. By grace thus far we've come, and grace will help us through the worst and lead us safely home. What a great security we have in this reality, the reign of Christ in our lives as believers. He clutches us and will never let go. We are secure if we are in Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. Praise and glory be to Almighty, our Almighty Lord and Savior. He's our champion that represents us over the reign of sin and death. 
If you have been justified by faith in Christ, you have a gladiator on your side to represent you in the Colosseum of life and death. You have a brave-hearted man that fought for your freedom from sin. Sin and death does not get the last word. When we will experience, uh, while we still experience death, we will rise like Christ. We can cheer in the confidence of our champion who fought for us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If following Christ is hard and difficult for you still, and even if you didn't think the cost of discipleship was so high to live out this reality, Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. The battle against sin is fierce, even in the present life as believers. But the victory is won. We fear not for our confidence is in our champion, a mighty warrior, the son of God who represents us and advanced to the front line ahead of us in the charge against the enemy of sin and death. One life, one sacrifice, one man to rule over sin and death for the many who are justified by faith, all because of history's ultimate hero. The first Adam brings us down, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ, brings us up from death to life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for representing us when we were lost, when we were without hope, we're thankful that we have a champion to represent us, Lord. Uh, to pave the way even as we live day by day to be transformed from one degree to another of glory and likeness in Christ. For we are new humans in Christ, Lord. We have wrought in us a constitutional change, Lord. And that change is realized even now, Lord, and perfected in the future. So help us to not lose sight of that reality, even as we tarry, even as we struggle, even as we experience doubt, even as we experience discouragement in this life, Lord, that we can have a sure confidence in our champion, Lord, and know that we will be like him. Help us when we lack faith, Lord. Help us when we doubt this, Lord when we struggle or are discouraged and that we would even support one another as brothers and sisters uh, in this fierce battle, Lord, uh, to live and, and believe this, but also rest in the confidence that the victory has been won in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.